Welcome to the Actionable Futurist Podcast, a show all about the near-term future with practical and actionable advice from a range of global experts to help you stay ahead of the curve. Every episode answers the question, what's the future of? With voices and opinions that need to be heard. Your host is international keynote speaker and actionable futurist, Andrew Grill. Today's guest is Maya Mafarik, CEO of strategic growth consultancy, Marketing Q. Maya has over 15 years in the tech and direct-to-consumer industries with roles at Google, Amex, Cisco, and LG. And she's passionate about working with ambitious entrepreneurs and purpose-driven CEOs to deliver truly sustainable growth. She says she's proud to be multicultural and multilingual, having had the pleasure of living and working in Moscow, Paris, Amsterdam, New York City, San Francisco, and here in London. Welcome, Maya. Thank you for having me, Andrew. Now, I've not lived in those cities, but I've worked and visited them many times, and they'd probably be on my top uh, favorite list as well. Do you have a favorite of all the ones you've worked and lived in? I think it must be Portugal, actually, now, or our summer places. We're going to talk about marketing today. You've had a lot of experience in marketing. I grew up as a technologist that became a marketer, so I know a little bit about marketing, I'll claim. But you call yourself a full-stack CMO. What does that mean in practice? Obviously, it borrows from the full-stack engineers, and really what it means is just that I work across the full spectrum of the customer journey and marketing disciplines. So from customer discovery, finding product market fit, all the way to acquisition, retention, and loyalty. Now, like me, you've worked at large organizations. I mentioned Google and Amex. So what lessons have you learned from these companies that you can bring to smaller organizations? Their focus on the customer and really building with the customer in mind, uh, I think, is what made them really successful. And so without understanding, you know, customer needs, anxieties, triggers and all of that, it's really hard to be successful in business. Um, Also, a lot of um, learnings from scaling up a business, which will require really a lot of coordinating sets of objectives, building with scalability in mind so that all processes are scalable uh, and just making sure that that secret source can really, you know, um, flood all the different departments and initiatives as the business grows. I've worked in marketing and, and startup roles with a number of organizations over the years, and that's the thing, being able to grow really quickly while you're doing everything else. We'll talk about that in a minute. Maybe you can give us an example of some of the growth you've been able to drive for your startup clients using marketing as the driver. This example I'll give you is uh, when I was a, a founding member of Chemist Direct and Pharmacy to You management team as their CMO. Um, it's a business that saves the NHS 15% um, in medication costs, and it's an $8 billion, um, you know, cost line um, for the NHS. We grew the revenue of the business fivefold, and brand awareness um, reached 25% in the UK. Um, so that's kind of a, a, an example of a business that really, um, from early days all the way to eventually selling out out to a private equity, um, kind of seen this tremendous growth, but really starting from building that category and that proposition um, of online repeat prescriptions, something people didn't know about, didn't exist until um, this business was founded and partnered with the NHS. So maybe not giving away your secrets and your IP, but what was the secrets to being able to grow that business so quickly? health tech, really, a lot of that is focused on building credibility because when uh, you're um, dispensing 
in many cases, life-saving drugs, it's not the same as not getting your socks or getting socks of a different color than what you ordered. So you need to build trust um, in your proposition, in your expertise, in the way you would remediate if something went wrong or your ability to pick up on any issues before they even um, happen. So that really is essential in many industries like finance and health, which really have a significant impact when something goes wrong um, for the end customer. Um, so that really has been a, a massive um, focus. Uh, another for any, to be honest, startup that are building something that doesn't exist yet um, is all about explaining how that fits into their everyday and how that can improve on the way they're doing something today. Yeah, I think marketing for startups is actually more interesting than existing companies because you've got to start from nothing. You generally don't have a lot of funds to play with and you've got to build awareness for a product, a service or category that doesn't exist. I studied marketing back in my MBA. A lot of people think I'm a technologist. I love marketing and, and I apply marketing principles to everything I do. One thing I learned during my MBA is the psychology of marketing. The reason why the milk is down the back of the store is so that you go past everything else. The reason why the confectionery aisle is brightly lit is because it makes you want to buy more things. So how important is understanding the human psyche to being a good marketer? If I had my way now or I knew what I knew now when I was whatever 18 and choosing my degree, I would totally study psychology. I think that's a, an actual advice I've given quite uh, quite a few times along the way. Um, it's all about people's psychology, right? Especially taking the example you gave us here around you're promoting something that people don't even know they need or exist or could help them. It's all going back into people's psyches, the progress they're trying to make in the world. Um, and, and where are they feeling the pain about what's not working for them? And therefore, how do you find them on that customer journey to present them with uh, what's necessary? What I'm describing here really um, is two things. It's obviously a customer journey map, which people are pretty familiar with, but it's also the jobs to be done framework um, by Clayton Christensen, um, which initially was an innovation framework around stating what are people, what progress people are trying to make in, in, in the world, what jobs are they hiring your product to do for them, because they don't care about the product, they, they care about how that makes them greater, better at something. Um, and so that is an essential tool I use every day and really recommend to most startups because you start not seeing the customer as a strict persona, but start seeing um, the outcomes that they're looking for instead. Um, and that, that becomes really essential, um, especially for products and businesses that no one is looking for because they don't know they exist or that it's even a way of improving on something. A great example of that is the iPhone. I think before the iPhone existed, we didn't know that we needed it. And probably one of the world's greatest modern day marketers is Steve Jobs, the late Steve Jobs. You recently quoted a 1977 Steve Jobs talks where he famously said, you've got to start with a customer experience and work backward to the technology. You can't start with a the technology, then try to figure out where to sell it. So has this been your experience working in technology-led companies in marketing roles? Well, absolutely. I think Google definitely subscribes um, to that. You know, it's not technology for technology's sake. It's technology as a mean to an end. Um, and so, you know, you'll take many different examples, but, you know, at the end of the day, people are interested in the benefits of that product and service. Um, it's a mindset change, right? It's not about this innovative um, technology that you're building. Um, and so ab absolutely, I think successful businesses have really focused on that. And, and Steve Jobs obviously was a precursor um, to all of that. Um, so, yeah. So why do you think a lot of startups that maybe don't have the benefit of your expertise and experience, they just say, look, if we build it, they will come? 
Yeah, I think that was a very popular phrase um, in the Silicon Valley many years ago. Maybe some still use it. Fundamentally, I don't know that the statement is wrong. What really it says, but people misunderstand it, it, it says if you build the right type of product that really present, you know, that really solves pro- real problems in people's life, they will come as in they'll use it and they'll stick with it. They will come as maybe slightly the, you know, the one to, to debate is that, well, you still need to communicate that benefit in the right way and find them in their customer journey where they're possibly not looking for you and not realizing you might be a solution for them. So there's some truth in that statement. I think it just, it's, it's a nice, neat little statement that needs a bit of explanation or possibly needs rephrasing a bit. I think now that we have the tools available to measure all the things that are going on, you think about it, 20 years ago, when the internet was in its infancy, we weren't able to measure what people did and where they went and the things they searched for. I think marketers today have an incredible amount of tools at their fingertips. I still think a lot of them are not using the tools that are available. You alluded to it before, you know, your first step when building a business should be customer discovery, getting to grips with their problems, their needs and their wants. Here's the $64 million question. How do you get startups who are focused on so many things at once, fundraising, getting the product right, get serious about the role of marketing? I think you just, you know, show them the numbers, right? The hard numbers. Um, And, you know, it's been proven through um, different pieces of research, including through a massive research by Kantar, that strong brands have proven to drive commercial impact. They command a 13% um, average price premium on um, weaker brands. Uh, strong brands capture uh, on average three times uh, the sales volume of weak brands. So really, you know, if, if they need hard numbers, those hard numbers exist. I think, however, what they're um, what they're not um, understanding most of the time is that building a brand is not a Nike ad, right? They might get to that point, but that's not where they are. What they need is to build really Understanding of their audience, be able to interact with them in using, you know, really the space their customers are in or the struggles um, um, they're um, suffering from at that point, and then use brand as an elevator, right? Basically, put your best Sunday outfit on and speak, you know, cleanly and comprehensively is already a a brand building step, actually. And so that's where it's really micro steps that you take from day one that eventually leads you to hopefully be a Nike and be able to do Nike brand ads. Uh, But in the meantime, all of those mini steps will help you amplify everything you do through brand building. Brand building is so important. I've actually gone through that in the last 12 months. I rebranded to the Actionable Futurist. You can see the logo on my screen there. It's important to then take the time to seed that and to build it. And everywhere that I talk about, I have the brand there. And hopefully it says what I do, because the problem I found in in my category is if you say the word futurist, everyone thinks, well, it's uh, Nostradamus or it's Arthur C. Clarke, and they're looking 30 years out. The people that hire me, I'm going to ask you in a minute who hires you, but the people hire me want a near-term solution. They want to be able to close the quarter. They want to be able to plan for next year. They don't want to know about flying cars in 30 years' time. What sort of clients hire you? Mostly work with startups and scale-ups that are getting to an inflection point in their business where they really need to now land on their product market fit or they found their product market fit and they really need to uh, build a scalable marketing and growth engine. And it's, I'm usually hired at those inflection points to really bring with me my experience at each of those inflection points and help them accelerate that process and not kind of uh, read with, uh, learn without previous experience. Um, often also to help them hire the relevant teams and to give them a blueprint um, for the next uh, few months of how to, um, you know, 
go through transformative outcomes, reiteration, um, so that they're set up for success. Now, you're an experienced marketer. How do you work with teams that maybe can't yet afford to hire a marketing lead or someone with a marketing background? Often in tech firms, and I've experienced this myself, they're very strong with technical backgrounds and, and technical ability. But if marketing is not something they've done before, you tell them what to do, you give them the blueprint, you give them the framework. How do you ensure that they execute if they're not used to marketing? Or, or do you have to put a team in there or they don't follow your advice? What I end up doing is, depending on the maturity of the business, the ability of internal talent, I work in multiple different firms and really depends on the maturity of the business. Um, I don't actually just deliver a blueprint. I actually develop a blueprint with them and hold them if needed in actually going through that process or delivering on each of the steps and help guide them. That's mostly younger businesses that maybe can't afford as much of my, you know, um, time, but want the kind of more, I call that functional coaching. I'm not a leadership coach by no means, but I know enough about marketing to help them like, you know, troubleshoot, I guess, the different stages that they're going through and the recommendations I've given. So I'm definitely not the like, hey, here's your PowerPoint, goodbye. That's absolutely not the type of work I do. But I can just guide them in more in a coachy way along the way and let them do it and learn from that process. Or if they're slightly more mature, have the internal resources or can afford a bit more of my time, um, then I'm a bit more involved and much more kind of integrate the team and deliver on very specific projects where coaching and guiding maybe our junior marketing team that needs a bit of help um, to get onto um, a specific way of working to support the business better. So what sort of organizations do you actually like working with? Do you obviously get a choice. Do you prefer a specific industry or type of business? The reason I, I run a portfolio career is very much because I enjoy the diversity of business models, of industries. The foundations of good marketing still are the same. It's just a slightly different mind gym or a set of tools depending on the industry or the business model. Uh, but I've worked with, you know, SaaS businesses like um, TED at Work, which is the L&D proposition of TED conferences. I worked with um, Tunes.com, their cross-border payment business. And then I worked with more, you know, um, consumer brand like um, Jude, which is revolutionizing older female health. So it's really across the spectrum of businesses. So you mentioned your portfolio career, and I've got one as well. You're also an angel investor. So what advice would you have for people looking to jump from a big corporate to having a portfolio career? Well, I think there's no jump to be had, actually. Interestingly, it's more of a slow transition onto, you know, a, a few hustle projects, you know, starting finding time to adding to your mix. And it might be a limited amount of things you can bring on top of your um, uh, day job or full-time job. But this is what helps you almost build the muscle or um, investigate a few areas that might uh, be of interest to you. I think that tends to work slightly better than a, than a full jump. Um, but that, you know, that, yeah, that's what I would usually say. The other thing about, um, portfolio careers, uh, and it's true to so many different things in our life, but I think specifically in portfolio careers, get to know yourself a bit better. Where do you have a unfair competitive advantage? Um, where, what are the things that you, um, are extremely great at and the stuff that, or you just don't like, or not that great at. And I think we need to stop trying to be great at everything and just accept that you're never going to be great at something and that's okay. Um, and so really focus on what you are exceptionally good at, specific perspective, specific skill, and that really can add value to people and, and, and you're quite unique in that way. So as an angel investor, what are the things you look for or value in a company? 
early stage businesses, you know, you often invest, you know, pre-product, right? Definitely pre-product market fit, maybe even pre-revenue in some cases. So really what you have to go by is first and foremost, I think a lot of people would tell you that is the founder. Are they credible? Are they dedicated? Are they resilient? Do they know enough about what they're trying to build or are they aware of their limitations and are they actively building on that? Um, I often look for empathy towards the problem. You know, do I care about this problem? Do I think it's problem worthwhile solving? Do I think I can add value in helping to solve that problem? Um, are some of the considerations I have. Um, my wild cards tend to be more, you know, second time or multiple time founders that have been so successful in previous ventures that it seems, you know, um, a wild guess if you don't know the problem enough, but it's safe enough to say why wouldn't wouldn't I extend um, a line of credit to such a proven founder? And there's never any guarantees, right? You can be successful once, fail once, or the other way around, or fail multiple times, succeed once. It's it's really uh, that's why I call it a bit of my wild card. Is there one company or sector you wish you had invested in but haven't? My angel career is still you know, relatively recent. So I, I don't have enough background at that stage, but I'm sure in the coming years, I'll see some businesses doing really well that I passed on um, and will feel like, oh, that would that could have been a good one. Is there one common mistake that startup CEOs make? If they're listening today, they cannot do that. Even if you have, you know, if there's a real founder product fit, if you see what I mean, like you're solving a problem, you even sold yourself and therefore you've been so much more confident that you know what the customer desired outcomes are, anxieties are. Even if that's the case, absolutely continue interviewing prospect customers or, or, or existing customers. If you start, you have a little, um, history with your business. Um, I'm really uh, baffled sometimes by how just because they feel like they're resolving a problem they experience firsthand, they are it. Um, and it's a great starting point. Don't get me wrong. It's super important. And founder product fit is often something we look at when we look at when we angel invest. But um, as angel investors, that is often when I walk into projects and marketing projects, uh, I start asking a whole bunch of questions about the audience and it's often a bit too high level to be doing meaningful, impactful go-to-market work. How important is organizational design and talent management when it comes to high-growth companies? Vital, like beyond important. Um, hiring is the, one of the most critical elements to business success uh, because hiring also takes quite some time. You really have to learn how to hire to really define exactly what kind of um, type of um, profiles would be most helpful to you. Um, hiring for the right um, the right fit for the stage of growth of a business. I mean, it's a very different skill to build from zero to one than to scale, right? Even 2000. So really being conscious of that. Uh, and by hiring for the right um, stage of growth, um, Really what you're, you're doing is that you're bringing in people who've done exactly that in other environment. And so for the next six months, at least, we'll be just perfecting things they know really well within your business, not trying to figure it out. And I find that to be um, also really important when it comes to startups. 
but yeah, I mean, you know, it's a bit cliche to say your people are everything, but it is actually that in the startup. You don't even have a product yet, right? So it's really the people around the table. Well, I'm saying that firsthand because I've been in six startups over a 12-year period before my IBM career and after my telco career and, and hiring the right people, not just in, in, in specific roles, but the people that get on together. Because as you know, in a startup, there is so much heavy lifting required. I've worn many hats. So hiring someone who doesn't mind doing a certain job. I mean, I've booked travel before because that's what had to happen. Can every small company become a high growth company? Are there specific characteristics or traits needed either from the company or the people? Well, I'm definitely more experienced with startups than SMEs. But, you know, if you look at startups, like 90% of them will basically fail or not return the investment from their uh, investors, right? The ones that don't fail is really hard to predict. I think there's plenty of, of research around that. I mean, so many elements need to come together. What's the marketing campaign you're most proud of from the large companies you've worked for and more recently with your growth companies? One of my biggest launches at Google was Google Chrome. Um, I was in charge of the EMEA side of that launch, but I was based um, in San Francisco, so working close closely with the product team and the kind of global creative team that was focused on that. Um, and obviously, you know, it's, you know, it's a multiple times acclaimed browser that came from behind, as they say in tennis, and, you know, took over that market. Uh, obviously, that's a lot of credit to the engineering team and the product that they built. Uh, but that was, I think, one of my most successful launches. It was the first time Google was launching in 42 languages in one day. So we were doing a truly global launch before we would launch, you know, five or six languages, you know, main languages on the first day. And then we usually would have a, an internal SLA of less than a year to launch to all other languages. Um, 42 languages at the time, I don't know what they do now, but 42 languages at the time was proven to cover 92% of all internet traffic, um, hence the focus. So, um, so that was definitely a tremendous global effort, a first of its kind for Google, obviously a massively um, strategic launch as well, um, because they were becoming not just the, the search of the internet, but the window to the internet. Um, so that, that was extremely proud of and be able to work on that. Um, smaller businesses, um, I mean, some of them haven't launched yet, but I guess, um, another one was tunes.com, the cross-border, um, payment business. Um, they were pretty well-established business, but very much focused on B2B sales. Um, you could argue that their, um, digital presence and infrastructure was, um, nascent. So I really, re you know, worked on both their messaging, their branding, their positioning, and relaunched them into this more scalable way um, to help them drive digital interest, not only direct sales interest. Um, so that's something I worked on for a few months uh, until we launched um, end of last year. So the last two years have been a learning experience for all of us. So I'd like to pick your brains. How have you changed as a manager and an investor as a result of the last two years? So I was one of those lucky ones because I worked in startups um, for quite a few years. Remote was almost a default. Like, yes, we had a permanent office and people would show up for meetings in this, but it wasn't our I wasn't there, you know, every single day of the week. So working remotely was already part um, of, of my of my style. I think um, arguably also with a portfolio career, and I'm no longer um, directly managing people. I'm influencing across a bunch of partners that I bring in with me on projects or internal teams. Um, I think relationship building has become even more important. Like you need to, you know, kind of when you're in person, there's like, you know, 
the na natural social side of us that kicks in and there's a little chat. I think this, you know, having a, um, a digital connection, if you're not conscious about it, it's easy to like just get on with business as opposed to doing the normal thing you do as you walk into a room and wait for someone to join. And so I think being much more um, conscious about relationship building with people uh, and properly checking in, I think a lot of us had to make that extra effort. Um, so yeah, so those are some of the things, uh, I think in my angel investing, obviously uh, we started seeing a lot of, um, products and solutions coming to life through the actual, well, if we're remote first now, what does that mean? Um, how do you manage teams? How do you build culture and like building tools that are really built with remote first in mind? Is there one piece of advice that you would give early stage startups? Benefit, 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 not feature, feature, feature. Before even you started on your business, you can't articulate the three core benefits that your solution, product, proposition uh, will be delivering to your audience. You're in trouble, basically, because you're so in the feature and in the solution that it's going to be even harder a bit later on in the journey to extract you from the feature space and the product space. And especially as a founder, you know, possibly the, the CEO of that business with the aspiration to continue being CEO of that growing business, you really need to be leading the way with benefit. Um, otherwise, it becomes, you know, unsustainable, I guess. Before we finish, I want to run you through my favorite part of the show, the quickfire round, when we learn more about you. So I'm going to throw some quickfire questions at you iPhone or Android? Android. I'm a former Googler. Come on. Window or aisle? Aisle. Online or in the room? Online. Your biggest hope? World peace, like every year, unfortunately. What's the app you use most on your phone? Must be WhatsApp. What's the one thing you won't be doing again post-pandemic? Baking hot crust buns. <laughs> Best piece of advice you've ever received? Oh, it's a hard one. I don't know that I personally received any single piece of advice that changed me, but I think definitely Michelle Obama's when they go low, we go high can be applicable to so many work and non-work situations that I think it's one I definitely keep a bit as a mantra when things get a bit heated or problematic. What are you reading at the moment? A book called Work Parent by Daisy Dowling. I think it's it's an HBS review kind of uh, publication. And it's all about, you know, how do you balance a fulfilling career <laughs> yourself and raising, raising happy children? Who should I invite next onto the podcast? With this actionable futurist angle, I would say Sasha, one of the founders from Olio. Um, and they're all about, you know, reusing more, throwing away less. Um, and that sounds like an actionable future for all of us. How do you want to be remembered? Well, I think, first of all, as a kind person, I think that's an underrated quality, but uh, mostly I think what I'm trying to do with my portfolio career is really being as generous as I can across the ecosystem with whatever I learned um, and then learn in the process myself through the exposure to so many different, you know, excellent founders, you know, like new products, business models, industries. So as this is the Actionable Futures podcast, what three actionable things should our audience do today when it comes to marketing their new product or service? Three actionable things. So invest in your brand early as it's an amplifier from day one. Customer discovery doesn't stop at an early stage. You need to continue it through the evolution of your business. And people don't care about your product or your technology. You need to articulate the customer value and benefits. Maya, how can people find out more about you and your work? Marketingcube.co. Follow me on LinkedIn where I share regularly my learnings and musings about the tech industry and marketing and branding in general. Maya, thank you so much for your time today. Most welcome. 
Thank you for listening to the Actionable Futurist podcast. You can find all of our previous shows at actionablefuturist.com. And if you like what you've heard on the show, please consider subscribing via your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. You can find out more about Andrew and how he helps corporates navigate a disruptive digital world with keynote speeches and C-suite workshops delivered in person or virtually at actionablefuturist.com. Until next time, this has been the Actionable Futurist Podcast. Thank you.